Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. ready for on-the-spot coverage of the 104th annual meeting of the Kentucky Academy of Science. Dave here, providing you with the first ever Ford Radio's coverage of the 104th annual meeting of the Kentucky Academy of Science, held on the beautiful campus of Western Kentucky University in sunny Bowling Green, Kentucky on November 2nd and 3rd of 2018. I was fortunate enough to attend the KAS conference this year, and I just thought I would fill you in a little bit about what happened there. Now, in the spirit of transparency, I should tell you that I've been a member of the KAS for more than 20 years now. To tell you a little bit about Kentucky Academy of Science, it's a nonprofit, membership-based scientific society founded at the University of Kentucky back in 1914. It started out with only 60 scientists back 104 years ago. It now has thousands of members and includes mathematicians and scientists from academia, from the public and private sectors, as well as K-12 teachers throughout the state. Here is how the KAS describes itself. The Kentucky Academy of Science brings scientists together to share research, award research grants to members, send scientists out to the community to to share their work and to recognize outstanding science education and outreach. So I attended the conference this year and wanted to fill you in on some of the highlights. One of the first events at the conference was a workshop about science policy and advocacy. I had to miss it since I was teaching that day, but one of the panel members was our own bench talk broadcaster, Dr. Trent Garrison of Northern Kentucky University, and maybe he'll fill us in on what happened at that workshop at some other time. I did attend the plenary session that night, however. It was held at the Corvette Museum there in Bowling Green, and I enjoyed walking around the museum during the reception and checking out all the cool cars. The main topic of the plenary speakers that night, however, was not the history of Corvettes. It was the history of the sinkhole cave-in that happened in the middle, right smack in the middle of the museum back in 2014. You probably remember seeing it on the news back then. It was reported worldwide. This huge sinkhole developed right inside of the museum in the wee early hours, and it swallowed up eight vintage cars. The collapse was caught on a security video camera and hit social media really hard. It really went viral. There was a representative of the museum 
who gave a talk at the plenary, and she described what the collapse was like for the museum and how lucky they were that no one was physically hurt. On the other hand, there were eight valuable cars that were seriously affected. These cars were altogether worth about a million dollars. Plus, the museum itself was severely damaged. But and then on the other hand, she pointed out that there was a remarkable uptick and the number of paying visitors to the museum after the sinkhole. So they had to decide what to do about fixing the sinkhole. Do they leave it as it is and get more people coming in to see it? Or do they just fill up the hole with rocks and soil and pave it to recreate the original museum? What did they do? Well, they sought the opinions of experts on this question. They brought in geologists, environmental consultants, geographers, engineers, and those were the experts who spoke at this plenary session. In fact, uh, Dr. Leslie North, who is president-elect of the KAS, also worked on this project. What I learned from this session is that there's two kinds of sinkholes that occur when you have a lot of karst geology, karst, K-A-R-S-T. Karst is a type of topography where a lot of the rocks have dissolved. And a lot of the rocks here in Kentucky are limestone. And when you have lots of rainfall and water underground, the limestone dissolves and flows away. And you get these big caves and then you can get sinkholes. I've heard that this part of Kentucky is like the cave capital of the world because we have so much karst. So there's two kinds of sinkholes and one of them results in a big cone-shaped depression in the ground because rainwater carries soil down into these empty spaces down below the sinkhole. You'll often see these driving around central Kentucky. Other than in the far east and the far west sides of Kentucky, and then there's a big area around Owensboro. The rest of our state is very karst rich. The most common places for sinkholes, however, are around Lexington and Frankfurt. And then there's this big U-shaped ribbon from Louisville going south down to Bowling Green, and that includes Mammoth Cave. And then it sweeps back up north again through Hopkinsville back up to the Ohio River. That's where you find a lot of heavy karst. So there's these obvious bowl-shaped sinkholes that we see, but then there's this other kind of sinkhole that forms a dome over the hole. So when there's a lot of water runoff, the soil underneath gets hollowed out, but on the surface, on the ground, there's a rock layer or there's a clay layer or something that is intact. And so you don't know there's a hole underneath until there's a catastrophe. And that's what happened at the Corvette Museum. The hole underneath the main hall of the museum formed underneath the floor and it didn't collapse until this one night in 2014. Apparently there had been a lot of rain preceding this collapse and there were freezing temperatures. It happened in February after all. And voila, the roof, the dome of the sinkhole, it just collapsed and all these cars fell down with it. Following the collapse, the sinkhole was measured to be 40 feet wide and 25 feet deep, but it connected to a larger cave system that I think is ultimately part of the Mammoth Cave System, which is north of Bowling Green. 
these scientists came in and evaluated the cave below using remote cameras and drones. They had some nice footage of that and they also measured the extent of the cave using this interesting instrument that measures the slightest change in microgravity around the museum. So they were able to map the cave underneath the museum using this instrument. And they realized that it was really a large hole, something like 220 feet long, 40 feet wide, 85 feet deep. It was a big hole under this museum. So the folks at the museum decided to fix the hole rather than just let it be. I think it was kind of an issue of how dangerous this hole was. But instead of just trying to fill it in with soil, these experts recommended that they bury these long pins into the ground underneath the museum to stabilize it better. They use these crazy water jet drills to make these holes and then they put long steel rods called micropiles inserted into the hole, into the cave, until they got to the foundation that they could use to hold up the museum. And then once they did that, then they could sort of fill in that hole and then pour another floor. If you've ever visited the Corvette Museum or if you've just driven by it on I-65, you know that the most noticeable part of the museum is this circular mustard yellow sky room and then there's this big red pointed cone sticking out of it. It's kind of an odd building. And it's that red cone that was of concern. Apparently it was over the hull and they were worried that the cone would start tipping and so that's another reason why they felt like they had to fill in this hole and use these micro piles to support the cone. So even though the Corvette Museum did fix the sinkhole, they did fill it in and put the floor back in, you can still see the sinkhole if you visit there because they left part of it intact. It's a window that's in the floor and you can look down and see how big that hole is. And the other thing that's neat is that they have the cars on display too. So a couple of the cars are hardly even recognizable. They're so smashed. And then a couple of the other cars just have a lot of damage. So this was an interesting series of lectures on Friday night at the KAS meeting. And then the next day I had a great time at the conference. I spent most of the morning at the zoology botany section. The moderator of this session was Dr. Oliver Beckers at Murray State University and he talked a little bit about his research and it's on crickets and the chirping sounds that crickets make. These are mating calls and he was looking at the chirping sounds produced in the fall of the year versus the springtime of the year and he found that not only do the male crickets produce a different song but the female have a different preference for song in the fall months versus the spring months. Dr. Stephen Husky at WKU spoke next and he talked about the yellow stingray and these poisonous spines that these stingrays produce that coming out of the tail of the stingray. You might remember the TV star Steve Irwin. He was known as the crocodile hunter and he was killed this way by a stingray in Australia back in 2006. Dr. Husky and his colleagues took some amazing slow-motion movies of what happens if you accidentally step on a stingray. What happens is that the stingray tail curves upward, kind of like a scorpion, I guess, 
and it can either flick the intruder with the tip of the tail as sort of like a warning, or if the Singray is really worried, it can inject the intruder with this poisonous spine. And the way the spine is constructed, it's really difficult to get that thing out once it's in your leg or any other part of your body. The next speaker in the zoology section at the KAS meeting that I went to was Brett Hodinka. He's a grad student at WKU and he spoke about his experiments on sleep deprivation in birds. He basically found that there is this bird species that lives in the Arctic where the days can be really long in the summer. They're able to withstand sleep deprivation better than a similar species of bird that is located or typically lives in more temperate climates. And it was interesting to see what they had to do to keep a bird awake. It's kind of an interesting question. And then there was some great research coming out of Murray State University about wolf spiders. Apparently female wolf spiders can practice cannibalism on male wolf spiders, sometimes even after copulation. So the male spiders are apparently practicing some pretty risky courting behaviors in front of these cannibalistic females. As a plant biologist myself, I really appreciated the research coming out of Eastern Kentucky University about running buffalo clover. Running buffalo clover is this native legume plant that produces flowers that look somewhat like the white clover, the Dutch clover we see growing in people's yard, except this species is extremely rare. In fact, it was thought to be extinct for a while. They call this plant running buffalo clover. Well, the running part comes from the fact that it forms like a clonal colony. It spreads vegetatively like other clovers do. The buffalo comes from the fact that it was associated with buffalo. Uh, the buffalo would create a, a trail or a path through wooded areas and this is where you would find the buffalo clover growing. And the other thing is that it's believed the buffalo clover seeds were passing through the digestive system of the buffalo and that's how they got disseminated. So when the buffalo disappeared, the buffalo clover disappeared. So now that biologists are trying to reintroduce runny buffalo clover to Kentucky and other places, they're trying to figure out what sort of light regime the plants enjoy. Do they like to be in the shade? Do they like to be in the sun? It turns out they like a little bit of both. They like partial shade. And that's what this research coming out of Eastern Kentucky University was about. Two students of mine also spoke at this section uh, at the KAS conference, uh, Keanu Mattingly and Robert Day. They were reporting about a short DNA sequence in the genome of a species of ragweed called common ragweed. And it's a little sequence that we also found in another species of ragweed called Kumon ragweed. And Kumon ragweed doesn't even grow in Kentucky, whereas common ragweed does. So they speculated about why this funny little 45 base pair DNA sequence was found in these two plants that grow hundreds of miles apart from each other. Their research was part of a larger project I called the Ambrosia Project because Ambrosia is the genus name for ragweed. And our ultimate goal in this project is to isolate the genes that are expressed in ragweed pollen 
that are most responsible for causing hay fever. There are also excellent talks in this zoology botany section on spider beetles, on African lions, on aquatic macroinvertebrates, and a lovable little fish called the big eye shiner. The session ended with a talk by Dr. Maggie Whitson, who's director of the John W. Theret Herbarium at Northern Kentucky University. John Theret happened to have been a much beloved leader of the Kentucky Academy of Science for years, so it was nice to see that memorialized a little bit. That Saturday afternoon of the annual Kentucky Academy of Science conference, I attended a few of the talks in the geography section. I loved the first talk by Dr. Donald Yao and Matthew Ruglis at Eastern Kentucky University. They were trying to measure the heat island effect at the EKU campus. The heat island effect is seen in urban areas where you have a lot of construction. Things like buildings, sidewalks, parking lots, they all absorb a whole lot of solar energy during the day and they create these zones around them that are warmer than how it would have been if you were out in, in a natural area where the natural soil and the natural vegetation would reflect a lot of that solar energy rather than absorb it. So these urban areas are a whole lot hotter than surrounding countrysides and that's what they were measuring. As I recall, they found that the biggest difference between the um, places where there were a lot of concrete versus out in nature was the nighttime temperature. It seems like the nighttime temperatures were higher in urban areas rather than in a place with more natural soil and vegetation. At the end of the talk, they posted the question, what can be done to remediate the heat island effect? And their answer was, grow trees. Not only do trees utilize solar energy for photosynthesis instead of just absorbing it, they're using it, but they shade the ground, they reduce erosion, they absorb harmful toxins from the air, and they're also absorbing carbon dioxide from the air. That's one of the main causes of global warming. Trees reduce the amount of energy needed to cool buildings, and they create aesthetically pleasing environments. It was a nice summary about why we should all plant more trees. Another talk I particularly liked in the geography section was by Tori Farrow and Jeremy Sandifer at Kentucky State University. They compared the heat island effect in 100 different cities and the question was in what cities was the heat island effect getting better and in what cities was the heat island effect getting worse? And wouldn't you know it, at the top of the list of the cities that actually have a worse heat island effect now than they did in the past, what was it? Louisville, Kentucky. They looked at not just the physical factors that might influence the magnitude of the heat island effect, but they also looked at social economic factors as well. They found that it was the lower income neighborhoods that had the most negative impact by the heat island effect with respect to health issues. Like the previous speaker, Tori Farrell reported that it was the nighttime temperature that was most important when considering the urban heat island effect. They found that factors such as race, household type, and whether homes were being rented versus owned were correlated with the magnitude of the heat island effect and whether there was some amelioration of that effect. 
addition to attending the talks at this year's Kentucky Academy of Science conference, I also perused the poster sessions. Posters are a very effective way to communicate research, and I certainly can't comment on all the posters I saw, as there were more than 200 of them, but one of the more memorable posters I saw had to do with pawpaw trees, a semina triloba. I'm prejudiced because I really love pawpaw trees anyway, but this research was coming out of Kentucky State University and they were analyzing these natural compounds that pawpaw makes that appear to have insecticidal properties as well as anti-tumor properties. There are commercially available pawpaw varieties out there now. There's actually some 40 or 50 of them, and some of them were developed at KSU. And this lab tested a lot of these varieties for the level of these anti-cancer chemicals that they produce. Another couple posters that caught my eye had to do with eDNA. Now, eDNA stands for environmental DNA, and the idea here is that DNA from organisms can get left behind in the environment. It especially works well for aquatic organisms. And the poster or two that I read were from Asbury University and University of Kentucky, and they were detecting salamander DNA in freshwater streams. Salamanders, of course, are these small, cute amphibians that you usually can't find very easily because they're hiding out underwater in little crooks and crannies or under rocks. And what this group was doing was just taking water samples from various streams and performing a technique called PCR. PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction, and it's a way of synthesizing very large quantities of a specific region of DNA. So they can basically use PCR to detect whether or not there is a salamander in the stream somewhere. What's nice about this technique is that it's non-invasive and it doesn't harm the animal because you don't actually even need to see the animal. You can detect its presence through its eDNA. Asbury University is also using this eDNA technique to examine frogs and fantail darters, which is a type of little native fish. The final poster that really caught my eye came out of Northern Kentucky University. It's about the Amur honeysuckle. It's commonly called bush honeysuckle, and believe me, it is common. This plant is native to Asia, and it was originally introduced to the United States as a way of controlling erosion and for reclaiming abandoned land. And also, it does produce very attractive white flowers. But it turned out that this bush produces edible red berries that birds eat and the birds do a really good job of disseminating the plant and bush honeysuckle is very aggressive and it produces allelopathic chemicals that discourage other native species from growing in that area so bush honeysuckles become a real weedy problem here in Kentucky every Olmstead Park here in Louisville has tons of bush honeysuckle growing in it and it's a shame because we would have a lot of really neat native bushes and shrubs and trees if we didn't have so much bush honeysuckle around. And our native animals would do a lot better if they had native plants to live and feed on rather than bush honeysuckle. Well, it was at a previous KAS conference that I attended a talk about a fungus that apparently was infecting the bush honeysuckle plants growing around Northern Kentucky University. 
this native fungus was causing a leaf blight on the plant. The leaves were turning yellow and falling off the plant prematurely. And apparently this disease was causing some dieback of bush honeysuckle plants around an NKU campus. Yeah, I remember being very glad to hear this because I am really not a fan of bush honeysuckle. There are so many other neat native species that I'd like to see growing here in Kentucky rather than bush honeysuckle. And at that earlier conference, there had been some speculation about whether this blight might spread. If it could spread to other places in Kentucky, like Louisville, that might be a way of getting rid of this plant and bringing back more native species. Well, I have yet to see early blight of bush honeysuckle here in Louisville, but according to this poster, it is occurring around the NKU campus up around Cincinnati. Well, that's my report on the 2018 Annual Conference of the Kentucky Academy of Science. My hat's off to the organizers of the conference as well as to Western Kentucky University for hosting the great conference. I think when I was down there, it must have been the peak of fall color and the trees on the WKU campus were really spectacular. I especially want to thank all of the scientists, young and old alike, who presented their research this year. I'm sorry that there's only enough time to report on a few of the projects I heard about, but I thought there were plenty more that I could have spoken about too. Stay tuned to Bench Talk in the future and we'll fill you in on other scientific conferences as well. Thank you. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word benchtalkradio at gmail.com Now all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives that's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you. (music) 